Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming for the first time to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. David Campbell. Now, uh, our aim tonight uh, is emphatically practical. There is absolutely no purpose in my talking about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth unless it's your purpose to talk about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, this talk tonight is an exercise in apologetics, and apologetics is a distinctly uh, practical discipline. Apologists want people to change their minds because changing your mind means uh, changing your life. Uh, the claim that is made sometimes uh, that it's possible to live one way and think another uh, is simply incoherent and false. Uh, many of today's popularizers of non-belief uh, think it's possible to be objectively moral, uh, for instance, while thinking in ways that undercut uh, objective morality. Now, it's obvious to me that uh, those people have not spent much time in a high school classroom, <laughs> because the high school students uh, with whom uh, I spend my days, the teenagers who live in your house, can see through that in a New York minute. If you undercut objective morality, then there is no objective morality and therefore no reason to obey any moral imperatives except your own. Apologists want to change people's minds because we want to change your life. I have a poster in my classroom at Centerville High School uh, that has it's got a quotation on it that's been variously attributed to uh, Gandhi, to Emerson, uh, to Benjamin Franklin. Nobody knows who said it, uh, but it goes like this. Watch your thoughts, because your thoughts become your words, and your words become your actions, and your actions become your habits, and your habits become your character, and your character becomes your destiny. I want to change people's minds because I want to change their destiny. Now, there is another sense uh, in which tonight our purpose is emphatically practical. If the resurrection is true, then it is the most important fact in the world. Heavens, what could be, what could be bigger? There's a way out of death. There's a way out of death in which you and not some indistinct substance that simply merges into the great ocean of being, not some vision of you, not some spirit of you, but you, as you, participate. 
Now, if that's true, then all people of goodwill should be wanting to shout that from the housetops. But if the resurrection is false, well, then as the Apostle Paul affirmed, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17, your faith is in vain and you're still in your sins. Not only that, but if the resurrection is false, then we Christians need to be stopped. We spent two millennia persuading people to bet their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor for the sake of something that's false. And if it's false, then all people of goodwill should want to bring it to an end. Now, I'm here tonight to persuade you that the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is true. Or if you already believe that, and I'm presuming a fair number of you already do, <clears throat> then I'm trying to persuade you to find a way to talk about that every day. I'm here tonight, in other words, because I want you to do something. As I said, my purpose tonight is emphatically practical. My appeal to you tonight is to do this for the sake of the young. Uh, now, as I've mentioned, uh, I'm a school teacher. I teach Latin and social studies at Centerville High School in Clifton, where I've been for the last 14 years. Now, a great many, uh, perhaps a majority, no, uh, certainly a majority of the students who come to my class every year come to me believing that some form of relativism and some form of naturalism is true. They have been told by teachers and by parents and by peers and by coaches and by social media and many, many others that uh, truth in general and moral truth in particular is not objective that people may believe things that are incoherent and incompatible because, well, all truth is subjective. Now, we all know that they don't live their lives that way. Almost all students believe in the objectivity uh, of justice, particularly when that justice means fairness to them personally. And many of them, uh, many of them are deeply motivated to promote justice issues of various kinds. Now, there's another kind of objective truth that almost all of them believe, a kind that's uh, less, uh, uh, less logical and more sinister. On the various social media sites where they spend 15 to 20 hours every week, and yes, it is 15 to 20 hours every week, they can get slammed unmercifully for thinking things that are not approved. In those social media sites, it is objectively true that nothing is objectively true. And you'd better believe that, or else. Now, many teenagers, uncertain about that ethos, keep their mouths shut or they pretend to go along uh, on those sites. And if you're spending 15 to 20 hours a week pretending, well, that pretending has a disobliging way of following you around. 
And if somebody exposes the pretense, if a teen is shown to believe something that's not approved, not approved by the Twitterverse, that is, while a storm of recrimination descends on those teenagers, often full of such bitter scorn that it can leave these students feeling, well, emotionally unstable. One of the things that's happening in school districts all over the country, including right here in Fairfax County, uh, students are experiencing elevated levels of stress, uh, anxiety, uh, depression, suicidal thoughts, and much of that is traceable, I think, to pressures coming from social media. One of the thought experiments that I do with uh, my students is called Cypher's Bargain. Now, I'm looking around this room, and I see a few people who remember the 90s. <clears throat> uh, this is based on a plot line from a movie in the 90s called The Matrix. Uh, it's called Cypher's Bargain. Uh, I tell students that they can have the perfect life. They can have the perfect life. They can have it forever on one condition. But they have to commit one act of, of terrible, wanton cruelty and betrayal. But when they're done, that event will be wiped from their memory. It'll be for them like it never happened. They will never have to see the consequences of their act. Do you take the deal? Almost all the students say no. They wouldn't take the deal. And it's always for the same reason. Because betrayal and cruelty are always wrong. Well, then I tell them, I'm not sure what you are, but I know what you're not. And what you're not is a relativist. Because a relativist could never say that there's anything that's always wrong. A relativist would take the deal. Now, what comes over their faces at those times, and I'm not kidding about this, I see it every single year. What comes across their faces at these times is not a look of puzzlement, not a look of, well, say, I never knew that. No, what comes across their faces is a look of panic. Because they see where that goes as well as you do. They see where that goes as clearly as you do. They see that once you admit the objectivity of moral values and duties, that commits you to a path that ends logically in God. A God who grounds the objectivity of moral values and duties, a God who is reasonably the originator of the material universe, a God who clearly intervenes in the material universe, a God who therefore is certainly capable of miracles like the resurrection of the dead. They see just as clearly as you do that the naturalist view of the world is less coherent, less rational, less helpful than the supernaturalist view. They see that the Christian view is more coherent, more rational, more helpful, more hopeful. They see that as clearly as you do. The difference is they're afraid of it. The difference is 
they're afraid of it. They have been told something else for so long, pretended something else for so long, built their entire view of themselves on something else for so long, been so afraid of what other people will think for so long that they can plead with the philosopher Thomas Nagel who said, I'm talking about the fear of religion. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Tim Keller is pastor of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He's author also of the best-selling book, The Reason for God. And he tells a story about how every Easter there's a crowd of skeptics that uh, wind up in his church, uh, many of them who are friends of his, who tell him that uh, they could never believe, bring themselves to believe something so completely fantastic as the resurrection. Now what Pastor Keller tells them is that their reservations notwithstanding, they should want it to be true. They should want it to be true. Now these are people who are deeply concerned about the poor, uh, about the sick, about the homeless, about the rootless, about the stateless, about the environment. And it really bothers them that there aren't more people who are as concerned about these issues as they are. Yeah, these are the same people who are also committed to the view that naturalism is true, that the material world was caused by accident and will ultimately perish in the heat death of the universe. Pastor Keller urges them to consider the connection between the hopelessness of their worldview and the moral inertia that they complain about. I mean, really, if, if naturalism is true, if this world is all there is, then is there any point to works of mercy at all. If Easter is only spiritually true, then it's not a fact that anybody needs to care about. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, I mean, if that really happened, then Christianity really is the wild, untamed good news for the whole world. It means, friends, that there is something more powerful than injustice, saner than naturalism, smarter than relativism. Easter means that God is not going to accept alternatives. Take away Easter says New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. Take away Easter and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring the problems of the material world. Take it away, and Freud was probably right to say that Christianity was simply wish fulfillment. Take it away, and Nietzsche was right to say that Christianity is for wimps. Many, many young people, including the teenagers in my class, the teenagers in your house, 
are already committed to a naturalistic worldview, a worldview that excludes the resurrection from consideration. But these are the people who should want the resurrection to be true. So, in order to get through to them, there are some worldview issues that need to be resolved first. It is necessary first to demonstrate that there really is a, a God who can intervene in the world, and second, to show that this God has. So, uh, let's start with some definitions. Naturalism refers to the worldview that for every effect in space-time, there is a cause in space-time. Naturalism refers to the worldview that for every effect in space-time, there is a cause in space-time. There are no events, no events that are the immediate products of supernatural causes. That cannot happen on naturalism. All space-time events, and of course each one of us is a space-time event, all space-time events are caused by the movement of particles and the transfer of energy. That's it. Now, it isn't necessary to be an atheist uh, to be a naturalist. Uh, there are some who claim that God is always at work, but God always operates, as it were, through the screen of nature. Uh, this is the view. This is the view of uh, John Dominic Crossan, uh, one of the 150 or so scholars of the uh, Jesus Seminar. Uh, Dr. Crossan uh, denies emphatically that he is a naturalist. But frankly, I, I think his denial is simply confused. If, as he says, God always operates through the screen of nature, then there is a space-time cause for every space-time event. That is naturalism. Now, I suspect that Dr. Crossan may be concerned that, his, uh, that naturalism obliges him to be an atheist. Uh, but, as I've said, naturalism does not require atheism. Uh, deists, after all, and uh, many of you already know that many of our founding fathers uh, were deists, uh, believe that God created the laws of nature and does not intervene in the operation of any of those laws. Deists, therefore, are what you might call theistic naturalists. But I understand Dr. Crossan's concern. Because once you accept naturalism, there is a certain inevitability about atheism. You see, if naturalism is true, then statements like, Christ died for our sins, and Christ rose from the dead, and God exists, these are not factual statements. They are interpretive statements. They are ways that people may choose to see the world, but they cannot be traced to any cause in space-time. In other words, these statements are myths. Now, we may certainly uh, choose to believe these myths if we'd like. We may find them meaningful if we'd like. But I'm sure you see where this is going already. Sooner or later, 
probably sooner. The question will arise, why believe the Christian myth rather than another one? Why not believe the myth of Odin and Thor? Why not believe the myth about Zeus and Ares? Why not believe the myth about Arjuna and Krishna? Uh, for that matter, why believe any myths at all? You know, after all, if the religious statements we make are only spiritually true but factually false, how is that any different from what the atheists have been telling us for years? So if people like John Dominic Crossan are concerned that their naturalism obliges them to a certain atheism, uh, but they still find certain statements about God to be meaningful, I understand the problem. There has always been a strong tendency to non-belief within naturalism. And on the presumptions of naturalism, there's simply no way out of that dilemma. For that reason, I want to affirm, and I want you to affirm, remember there's something I want you to do tonight. I want to affirm, and I want you to affirm, that naturalism is not true. And that traditional Christian theism gives a far better account of the world that we live in. And to that end, I'm going to defend three claims. First, Naturalism cannot account for the origins of the universe. Christian theism can. Two, naturalism cannot account for the order and complexity of life on earth. Christian theism can. And third, naturalism cannot account for the existence of objective moral values and duties. Christian theism can. Now, the consensus of contemporary cosmology is, and has been for some time, that all space and time began in a massive singularity, a huge explosion, 13 to 15 billion years ago, called the Big Bang. Now, prior to the Big Bang, there was nothing. Not empty space, not a quantum vacuum, not a realm with a net energy level of zero. Nothing non-existence. Now this is a hard concept uh, for uh, human minds as MIT physicist Gerald Schroeder attests for he says that to think about it we have to turn nothing into something. So in the very act of thinking about it we've missed the point. <laughs> now one of the conclusions that science has reached for which there is not a single exception is that anything that begins to exist has a cause that is not itself. Anything that begins to exist has a cause that is not itself, because it's absurd to think that anything can create itself. So whatever caused the universe can't be part of the universe. Now if that cause is outside the universe, outside the realm of space and time, then that cause has to be timeless, changeless, spaceless, immaterial, rational, personal, and massively powerful because it created the universe without a material cause. 
Now that is what Christianity and all the other theistic religions have always said about God. So we have a coherent, comprehensive argument from the existence of the universe to the existence of God. Now naturalists are in a terrible bind here because for them to account for the, universe, the existence of the universe, they have to uh, affirm that the universe created itself, which is absurd. That it came from nothing by nothing, which is also absurd. They must also affirm that the universe itself is infinite. Well, which is opposed by logic and natural science. Uh, if the universe is infinite in the past, this is the way you can look at it, if the universe is infinite in the past, then you would have to cross an infinity of moments to get to the present moment. If the universe is infinite in the past, then you would have to cross an infinity of moments to get to the present moment, uh, which means you'd never arrive. And yet here we are. If the universe were infinite in the past, then the available energy in the universe would already have been used up. Scientists already know that the amount of energy uh, is declining in the universe, and the heat death of uh, our universe would already have occurred because there was an infinity of space and time for it to happen in. Yet here we are. So in short, in short, for naturalists to account for the existence of the universe on naturalistic grounds, they have to plunge deep into illogic and reject the very science that they say is the beating heart of their worldview. Christian theism, in affirming that the universe is the creation of an omnipotent and omniscient God, gives a far better account, and so is the far better worldview. Well, what about the view that the order and complexity of the universe points to the existence of God? This is the argument from design, which says that the order and complexity of the universe is due either to necessity uh, or to chance or to design. It is not due to necessity or chance, and so it must be the product of design, and therefore there must be a designer. Now, cosmologists never argue that the order and complexity of life and the universe happened by necessity, that this is the only order there could ever have been. The laws of nature we have, uh, they say, would support a variety of different orders. They do take the view that the order and complexity of the universe are due to chance. And the most popular version of this view today is the so-called the multiverse. They say that there's not one, but perhaps an infinity of universes out there. Now, setting aside the desperate ad hocness of this view, there's not a shred, and I mean not a single shred, of scientific reality for which the multiverse is an explanation. The only purpose for the multiverse has ever been uh, to deny the existence of God. But setting that aside for the time being, the multiverse asks us to accept uh, as a random occurrence, a chance occurrence, numbers that just are mind-bogglingly large. Uh, the famed uh, atheist philosopher Anthony Flew 
uh, discussed an experiment that was conducted by the British National Council of the Arts. They began with a contention that was made by Stephen Hawking in his book, A Brief History of Time, which some of you may have read. Uh, Stephen Hawking said that if you set a pack of monkeys at work uh, banging away at a computer, uh, give them enough time and they're going to come up with a Shakespearean sonnet. So scientists uh, in Britain uh, took a pack of monkeys and they set them, uh, set them loose on a computer. And after a month, the monkeys had produced 50 typed pages and not a single word. Now, MIT physicist Gerald Schroeder did the math. I'm a lifelong sufferer of math anxiety, so bear with me on this one. He explained it this way. Shorter Shakespearean sonnet is 488 letters. Uh, it begins, uh, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? 488 letters, so imagine 488 coffee cans, each of them holding the 26 letters of the alphabet. What are the chances if you reach into the first can you're going to pull out the letter S? Well, it's 1 in 26. What's the probability that you uh, reach into the first can and pick out a letter S and the second can and pick out a letter H? Well, it's 26 times 26. And so on through 488 letters. 26 times 26 times 26, etc. And uh, having done the math, I'm trusting Professor Schrader on this, that gives you 3.2 times 10 to the 690th attempts you'd need to get a Shakespearean sonnet by chance. Now, when you keep in mind that there are 10 to the 80th particles in the universe, okay? Now, 10 to the 80th, that's one followed by uh, 80 zeros. 3.2 times 10 to the 600, that's 32 to, uh, followed by 689 zeros. That's just to uh, have the, the right number of attempts to get a Shakespearean sonnet by chance. You have to have a universe eight and a half times larger than the one we've got just to, uh, to get enough attempts. And that's not even thinking about how many you'd need for one single strand of DNA or a universe, or a multiverse. In our world, you don't get sonnets or universes by chance. Now, to get an idea of how very large these numbers are, I'll tell you something that I do with my students. I ask them to consider the number 10 to the 12th, which you already know is 1 trillion, uh, 1 19th of our national debt. One trillion seconds ago, one trillion seconds ago, it was the late Stone Age. A trillion minutes ago, the Earth's crust was still cooling. If you were to start right now counting at a rate of one to two hundred a minute and didn't stop to eat or sleep, you would reach a trillion in 9,513 years. It is simply not meaningful to talk about numbers this big and far bigger and still be talking about chance occurrences. It is far more reasonable to say that they point to intentions, to decisions. And this, <laughs> this is the only satisfactory conclusion, said famed uh, philosopher and former atheist 
Anthony Flew. The only satisfactory explanation of the origin of such indirected, self-replicating life on Earth is an infinitely intelligent mind. So, so far we've seen that naturalism is inadequate to account for either the origin of the universe or its complexity. Does it do any better at explaining the foundation of objective moral values and duties? Well, not only does it not do any better, it denies that objective moral values and duties exist. Now, the atheist philosopher uh, Michael Ruse is very candid about this. He says this, morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they're referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. In other words, on naturalism, objective moral values and duties are just pretend. Now, this doesn't keep naturalists from very robust moral denunciations of their own. Uh, the late Christopher Hitchens uh, was famous for saying, religion poisons everything. Sam Harris uh, says that our God is an Iron Age God of war. Uh, Richard Dawkins famously said this, uh, that God is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. <sighs> now, the very same Richard Dawkins has written in another one of his books, River Out of Eden, says this, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we would expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. In other words, naturalists are trying to have it both ways. They want to denounce God's immorality and at the same time hold that morality doesn't exist. Remember, a high school sophomore is going to see it that fast. They want to say that God is pretend, but God's moral perfection isn't. This is a logically incoherent position, and every rational agent is right to reject it. Well, what's the way out of this dilemma? Now, I think Michael Ruse is right. If naturalism is true, then objective moral values don't exist. I think that's a very good reason for saying that naturalism isn't true. Naturalistic ethics may be free of internal contradictions, but they would yield a life that's frankly monstrous. Look at it this way. If naturalism is true, then it makes sense to say that criminality is simply a result of heredity and environment. People do bad things because they're driven by their genes or by their neighborhood. Now, if criminality is caused by these things and not by immoral choices because immoral choices and free will, all those things don't exist. 
If people can be undone by their neighborhood or by their genes, why would we ever allow people in poor, violent neighborhoods to vote? Why would we do that? If they can be disordered by their neighborhood or by their boyfriends or girlfriends, why would we let them disorder the country by voting? No. By all means, restrict voting to the well-off and well-born. On naturalism, that makes sense. And why stop there? Why stop there? If we know uh, that certain people can be undone, by their neighborhoods or by their boyfriends or by their girlfriends, why would we let them reproduce? Why not bring back the frank eugenics movement of the 1920s? On naturalism, that makes sense. Now, every single naturalist I know would be horrified at those suggestions, as they should be. But they can't be horrified because they're naturalists. They have to be horrified because deep down there's something else. All the naturalists I know would agree that the association of vice with poverty is a vile, uh, old, and dirty stone that's been flung insolently against the poor. But folks, it isn't the poor who created the rap hip-hop culture that glamorizes violence and degrades women. It isn't the poor who created the international cartels that profit from the manufacture and distribution of drugs. It isn't the poor who publish books and articles affirming the relativism that they forbid their children to practice. It isn't the poor whose children spend 15 to 20 hours a week on social media and then wonder why a third of the student body can't read a grade level. And yes, it is a third of the student body that can't read a grade level. All the naturalists I know are suspicious of wealth and power as guides to good behavior. But so far in history, as far as I'm aware, there is only one worldview that proposes wealth and power as a formula for moral wreck. And that is the worldview that teaches this. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's from the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> for all you Catholics who didn't know that, Bible study at St. Bernadette, 7 o'clock Monday nights. <clears throat> but how they say, how can a man live in squalor and still be expected to live a noble life? Well, many naturalists will ask this. Now, with respect, uh, but only barely, to the naturalists who ask this, there are millions of people around the world who do that every day. There is a liberty in people that makes it possible to sing in prison and to live nobly in slums. It is this very liberty, however, that naturalists say doesn't exist. Michael Ruse, Richard Dawkins, a host of others say that we are simply machines for the transmission of DNA, nothing more. Gilbert K. Chesterton, however, looked forward to a day when man the machine will stand up and say aloud, was there not once a church that taught us our souls were free? Was there not once a church that taught us how to sing in prison and live with honor in slums? If there was, bring it back so that we may believe that again. A little earlier in my talk tonight, I mentioned Pastor Tim Keller.
who challenges many of the skeptics that he knows to, if they don't already believe the resurrection, they should want it to be true. He challenges them to question the naturalism that they have assumed, the view that says that Easter is spiritually true but not factually true. I think the inadequacy of naturalism has been shown tonight. Naturalism can't account for the existence of the world, the order and complexity of the world, or the objective moral values and duties on which we all depend. Christian theism gives a better account of all of them. Not only should we want this to be true, there's good reason for us to believe this is true. However, to say that there is a God who can intervene is not the same thing as saying that God has. So we have to take a second step. Did God intervene on Easter? Is there good evidence that God has raised Jesus from the dead? Evidence that can withstand the scrutiny of those who claim that something else happened on Easter Day. I think there is such evidence. And to assess that evidence, I want you to uh, grant just two things as given. One, there is a book called the New Testament. And two, there is an institution called the Christian Church. What accounts for the existence of these two things? They have both had such an outsized influence on the history of the world, they have to be explained somehow. Now, both the New Testament and the church say the same thing. They exist and they've had the influence they've had because Jesus really did rise from the dead. If they're wrong about that, then something else happened on Easter Day. Whatever that is, it has to be more plausible than the claim that Jesus rose, and it must account for the impact of the New Testament and the church. And if it can't do both of those things, then we Christians are completely rational to believe that the resurrection is true. So, what are the alternatives to the resurrection? Oh, darn, I did it again, didn't I? There we go. <clears throat> In the 19th century, Heinrich Paulus of the University of Heidelberg proposed what is sometimes called the swoon theory, the idea that Jesus didn't die on the cross but merely fainted into a coma-like state, revived in the cool of the tomb, escaped, appeared to his disciples proclaiming that he had conquered death but later succumbed to his many in injuries and was quietly buried someplace else. Now, this book, uh, this uh, theory uh, had some revived interest in the 20th century in a book that some of you may recall from the late 60s, The Passover Plot uh, by Hugh Schoenfield, and more recently by Barbara Thiering in her book, uh, Jesus and the Riddle of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But uh, its revival notwithstanding, the unanimous conclusion of serious scholarship, uh, including an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1986, says a swoon theory ignores all the medical and historical evidence there is. And it proposes a version of events more incredible by far than the resurrection. Uh, we're asked to believe, uh, for instance, that uh, if the swoon theory is true, that Jesus survived his injuries on feet that had been pierced by six-inch Roman nails, he got up, rolled away a stone, and escaped a Roman guard, 
He appeared to his disciples, but was so badly hurt that he died anyway. And the disciples hailed that as the conquest of death, proclaimed Jesus divine and still alive and worthy of worship. Well, uh, David Friedrich Strauss's indictment of this from back in 1865, uh, I think, is still sound. It's impossible that a being who has stolen half dead out of the sepulcher, crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, and indulgence, and who at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given to his disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave, the prince of life, an impression which lay at the bottom of their future ministry. The swoon theory, in other words, folks, it can't account for the facts. It's utterly implausible, and it's the go-to account only of anti-intellectual cranks and commercial opportunists. No serious scholarship of any kind today believes it. Now, there's another theory, a theory that's even older, uh, called the conspiracy theory. Argues that the disciples uh, or their proxies stole the body and thereafter made up the story of the resurrection. Now, this would account for the empty tomb, but it faces a number of other very serious liabilities. First of all, uh, it strains credulity to think that 11, uh, the 11 remaining disciples could have concocted a lie so elaborate, and this is a lie so elaborate, it's on the level of hobbits and Middle Earth. <clears throat> a lie so elaborate, uh, and not one of them ever let the cat out of the bag, uh, either freely or under the pressure of ridicule, ostracism, exile, torture, and death. The personal character of the disciples similarly uh, argues against conspiracy. They preach the live, the living, sorry, they preach and live the risen Christ. They were bold, they were virtuous, they were holy, and they were regarded as such by friends and enemies alike. Now it's hard to imagine all that from a group of people who knew that they were lying. Uh, for a third thing, uh, lies are told by people who seek some advantage. Well, what was their advantage? Ridicule, ostracism, exile, torture, and death. That would seem to indicate that at least they thought they were telling the truth. Uh, in short, the conspiracy theory asks us to believe that these 11 disciples, uh, who had never distinguished themselves as being the brightest bulbs in the chandelier, <clears throat> concocted this elegant and elaborate lie from which one, not one of them ever defected. They lived lives and they died deaths completely at variance with what we could expect from people who are habitual liars. And for 2,000 years, the entire world lapsed into imbecility. And only now have we figured out what actually happened. No serious scholarship of any kind, believing or non-believing, believes this either. There's a, a third theory and a that's been uh, getting a lot more, see, I did it again. Um, a third theory that's been enjoying some revived attention, it's called the hallucination or the vision theory, uh, argues that uh, the disciples only uh, imagined that they'd seen the risen Christ. And this is getting some attention because uh, of uh, certain New Testament scholars like Gerd Ludemann uh, have been writing quite a lot about this. Now, the most disagreeable fact I swear I'm hitting the right button, but clearly I'm not. 
The most disagreeable fact about this is there's no evidence today that wasn't uh, about this theory that wasn't around 100 years ago. The ancient world was familiar with the tendency of people to experience visions of dead relatives and loved ones. Ancient literature is full of them. Uh, additionally, uh, if the disciples had begun proclaiming Jesus is raised, and it was just a hallucination or a vision, all his enemies uh, would have to do is produce the body. If the tomb was empty and the resurrection didn't happen, then in addition to the hallucination and vision, either the swoon theory or the conspiracy theory would have to be true. Most significantly, the testimony of the church has never been that the first witnesses saw a vision of Jesus. It has always been that they saw Jesus alive, that they ate and spoke with him on various occasions over a period of six weeks, that he appeared to the women, uh, that he appeared to the apostles, to his brother James, to a crowd of 500 people. And after those uh, six weeks, the appearances ended. There's no new medical, psychological, or historical evidence that's arisen to support this theory. It still remains the case that it can't account for the facts. People just don't have mass hallucinations like this over a period of six weeks. The people who do tend to be those people who are suffering from mental illness or drug abuse. None of those things can be reasonably associated with the first witnesses in the New Testament. Uh, finally, uh, a fourth theory has been enjoying some revived interest these days called the myth theory, uh, according to which the uh, resurrection story developed over time, uh, like other mythic stories in Roman, Greek, and uh, Norse traditions. Now, I'll put my Latin teacher hat on for just a second and tell you that I've been reading poems and legends and vision literature and myths most of my adult life. And I can tell you that the New Testament is not like any of these. Neither the New Testament as a whole, uh, nor the resurrection narratives in particular. Now, people who are much more extravagantly trained in literature uh, than I am all know this. Uh, C.F. Lewis uh, spent his whole life uh, studying literature at uh, Oxford and Cambridge. He said this, of this text, uh, meaning the resurrection narratives, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, though it may no doubt contain errors, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. If it is untrue, it must be narrative of that kind. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. Now, I can tell you also that uh, myth is a very highly developed form of literature and discourse. Myths that have stood the test of time are very brightly polished gems uh, of, of literary achievement. All the rough edges have been smoothed off. Uh, all the embarrassing elements have been buffed out. And they've passed through so many hands over so many generations that it's not possible to tell any longer where or by whom they originated. The resurrection narratives, by comparison, uh, are simply not good enough to be myths. Uh, they are rough. They are teeming with embarrassing elements. They reach their final form within 50 years, maybe sooner, 
uh, after the death of Jesus. How many women went to the tomb? What time was it? How many angels did they see? What did the angels say? A proper myth would have harmonized all those things. Uh, ladies, a proper myth would have airbrushed all the women, too. The testimony of women was not permitted in ancient courts. And no self-respecting myth would have made women the first witnesses to an event so important as the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, indeed, in the earliest account that we have of the resurrection, uh, this is in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, uh, Paul excludes the women from the list of those whom the risen Christ had appeared to. He mentions uh, Peter. He mentions the Twelve. Uh, he mentions uh, James. Uh, he mentions the crowd of 500. The women aren't there. Now, when the Gospels began to appear uh, uh, 10 to 20 years later, they were put back in. This is myth in reverse. The only explanation for this, uh, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, is that the Gospel writers thought that they were in possession of material that preceded Paul. And they didn't think they were writing a myth. They thought they were writing history. Nothing else for accounts for them restoring so embarrassing an element to the narrative. So the, the myth theory, it's a literary theory, can't make its case on literary grounds. It can't account for the existence of the New Testament. It can't even account for the kind of literature it is. And so it can't either account for the impact of the New Testament or the church. We've examined tonight four alternatives to the resurrection. The swoon theory, the conspiracy theory, the hallucination or vision theory, and the myth theory. None of them can plausibly account for the facts. They can't account for the existence uh, or the impact of the New Testament or the church. In comparison, the Christian claims of the resurrection account for all the facts of the death and burial of Jesus, the empty tomb, the post-resurrection appearances, and it accounts wonderfully for the existence and impact of the New Testament and the church. For that reason, we Christians are on very secure, rational ground to affirm that the resurrection is true. And considering the liabilities of naturalism, which is the presumption of most people who oppose the resurrection, I think it's safe to say that we Christians are more rational to proclaim he is risen. I've made this argument in various ways at various times to many teenagers and high school students. And by God's grace, this has led to some no kidding conversions. Students tell me with great regularity they had no idea that Christians could make a case for the resurrection. Most remarkably, I hear that also from the Christian kids, including the Catholic kids. They had no idea we could actually defend this. I wonder what's going on in their parishes. All of them are pleased, and all of them uh, even more are relieved to find that there is a case for the resurrection to be made. And I think that's because deep down they want it to be true. 
They want it to be true because it gives a face and a form to the moral yearning that they have, but they can't defend. Many atheists and other non-believers of today, they call themselves humanists when the values that they promote are merely naturalist. They reduce us human beings to the stuff that we're made of, and then they're shocked, shocked to find that such a reduction of human life corrodes the humanist values they seek. And then what's even more remarkable, many of them, like the popularizers Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, they double down on naturalism and their purported humanism is lost in an ocean of illogic and bumptious name-calling. The teenagers in my classroom, the teenagers in your house, are looking for a different kind of humanism. A humanism that recoils from the horrors that naturalists recognize but are powerless to prevent. They're looking for a humanism that empowers the virtues that naturalists claim but can't support. There is a humanism that recognizes the objectivity of moral values and duties. There is a humanism that recognizes a world that's bigger and purer than particles in motion and transfers of energy. There is, in short, a Catholic humanism that's Catholic enough to talk sensibly about redemption and humane enough to offer that redemption to everyone. There is a Catholic humanism that is wise and intelligent enough to be beholden not, neither to Republican neglect of the poor, the old, the stranger, and the environment, nor to Democratic unwillingness to state a goal for its progressivism, its contempt for the unborn and those who defend them, its confusion about marriage, and its hipster scorn for the objective virtues that, by, by which alone people can be happy. There is a Catholic humanism that speaks plainly, patiently, persistently, and passionately about the evidence for the resurrection because it's smarter, because it's more humane, because it's more coherent and finally, more hopeful about the possibility of the virtuous community that all people of goodwill instinctively seek. The kind of virtuous community we Catholics achieve, however briefly and imperfectly, every time we gather around the Eucharist. As I said at the start of this talk tonight, our purpose is completely practical. I want, uh, God willing, we want people to change their minds and thereby change their lives and thereby change their destiny. Today's non-belief says to the teenagers in my class and in your house that the Christ of faith, the Christ who forgives sin, rose from the dead and is the savior of the world is a myth. They say to the teenagers in my classroom and in your house that this, these stories about Jesus may be religiously true, but they're not factually true. If they're right, then naturalism is true and atheism is unavoidable. 
And as we've seen, naturalism has quite an appetite. It won't stop at religion, but it'll reach for the humanism that naturalists say is their goal. And it may be their goal, but it's a goal that they can neither reach nor protect. Catholic humanism can reach it and protect it. In fact, it has. In fact, it does. In fact, it will. I want to leave you tonight uh, with this from Pope Benedict, who said this, the evangelization of culture is all the more important in our times when a dictatorship of relativism threatens to obscure the unchanging truth about man's nature, his destiny, and his ultimate good. For this reason, I appeal to you, the lay faithful, in accordance with your baptismal calling and mission, to put the case for the promotion of faith's wisdom and vision in the public forum. He is risen indeed. We are the Catholic humanists that God is calling tonight to go out and make that case. In his mercy, may it be so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you. Uh, the gentleman over here asked me, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name already. Thank you. Um, he asked me, uh, if, uh, if nature can't uh, uh, create nature, but God creates nature, uh, who created God? Uh, and this is a very, very common question. comes up all the time uh, from high school students. Uh, no offense. Um, <clears throat> uh, but one of the things I point out to them is this. You know, one of the things I mentioned in my talk was the, uh, the actual impossibility of an actual infinite number of things. Okay? Uh, uh, any mathematician will tell you that an ac actual infinite number of things is a logically incoherent concept. Look at it this way. You take the, uh, the set of all whole numbers, one, two, three, four, five, that's an infinite set, right? Uh, you take away from that all the even numbers, uh, also an infinite set, right? What are you left with? All the odd numbers, right? Also an infinite set. So infinity minus infinity equals infinity. Look, I'm a lifelong sufferer of math anxiety. I know that one doesn't work. Okay? So an actual and infinite number of things doesn't exist. Uh, scientists already are very comfortable with the idea of uh, the Big Bang. There really was uh, an actual space-time boundary uh, that the universe began in one, uh, all space, all time, began in this massive singularity called the Big Bang, all right, prior to which there was nothing. Now. Uh, in order for the, something outside of the Big Bang to have created that, then whatever that is has to be timeless, changeless, spaceless, uh, immaterial, massively powerful, personal, rational. Okay? In other words, has within himself, herself, itself, however you want to describe it, uh, reason enough for its own existence. Okay? Uh, it has to be the case if it's outside the realm of space and time. Okay? Does that make sense? Uh, you might want to chew on that for a little while, uh, but that's the, the, you know, that's the easiest answer to your question. Uh, and the easiest answer to your question is uh, spend some time in conversation with these. And also, there are some very, very good books uh, that, uh, that deal with uh, these apologetics issues uh, that arise most typically. I mentioned one in my talk uh, by uh, Tim Keller. It's called The Reason for God. 
Uh, it's a fabulous book. Not written by a Catholic, uh, but the, uh, we're talking about the same stuff. The Protestants and Catholics are on the same page uh, when it comes to a lot of these apologetic arguments. The reason for God is very, very good. In addition to that, um, the, uh, a classic by C.S. Lewis, um, uh, Mere Christianity. Um, by the way, if you're going to read something else by C.S. Lewis, read the screw tape letters. Uh, uh, it's fabulous. But uh, if you have a look at uh, The Reason for God by uh, Tim Keller uh, and the Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, uh, that's a, a really, really good way to get started. And if you want to uh, send me an email, I can send you a list of you know, a couple dozen other things that are on the in, uh, introductory level uh, to get you started. Here's another one and a name you're going to want to be familiar with. His name is William Lane Craig, William Lane Craig, and he's written a book for those people who are interested in learning about the basics of apologetics. It's called On Guard. On Guard. Now, if, you, if you're wanting uh, to uh, plunge into a little bit deeper water, uh, his magnum opus uh, that he's best known for is a book called Reasonable Faith. Uh, Reasonable Faith. Now, that's a pretty dense read. Uh, start with On Guard, then move uh, to uh, Reasonable Faith. Uh, that'll give you a lot of background uh, on th the kinds of things you can practice in uh, groups in your parish. Okay. Um, question. Uh, okay. Um, question. Uh, so, what if what if someone decides to get rid of the idea of a historical Jesus altogether? In other words, they say, "Okay, we're not even going to talk about whether Jesus died in the first place." Do we have any more evidence for that beyond? the Gospels. I've heard there's something in Josephus. I've also heard that's a little questionable as maybe it's a later edition. Uh, if you could just speak to what other historical evidence we have of Jesus, period. Uh, in, in addition to the Gospels? Okay. Well, there, uh, in truth, there are very few. Uh, there are very few. There are some, uh, some uh, small mentions of uh, Christ in uh, Josephus. Uh, there are some small uh, mentions of, uh, of Christ in Tacitus, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, and the, uh, and the Roman historian uh, Suetonius. Uh, so uh, we're on very safe ground to say that uh, Jesus of Nazareth did exist. Uh, the uh, attack the that some uh, non-believers want to take uh, these days is to say that Jesus is a fairy tale uh, along the lines of Mother Goose. Uh, and there is no serious historian today uh, of any kind, uh, Christian, non-Christian, uh, uh, atheist, no, no, uh, no historians today think that that will hold up under examination. Uh, now, the best, uh, uh, example, the, the best sources we have uh, are the Gospels themselves. Uh, and uh, once again, I would direct you to uh, uh, William Lane Craig on guard. He's got a wonderful chapter there on why the Gospels are very good uh, sources for historical information. Okay? I hope that answers your question. How much of Adam's, Adam and Eve, Adam's DNA was determined by the assembly of the subatomic particles that evolved shortly after the Big Bang? Where did God give the soul to the dust that became Adam? Dr. Campbell, we have a question coming in online from Barbara Rice in Chantilly. Yeah. She asks, Islam has had a huge impact on our world and many people have believed even to martyrdom. How does that compare to Christianity's impact and beliefs through, tri and beliefs through trials? How is Islam's belief and impact not a sign of it being true? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. 
I do know that it happened. Uh, but uh, when in historical time, when uh, in a continuum following the Big Bang, you know, how many nanoseconds after the initial expansion, I have no idea. Well, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting question uh, with Islam. One of the, the areas of comparison with, uh, between Islam and, uh, and Christianity uh, is the, uh, the origins of the Quran. Uh, there are some uh, terrific stories uh, in Islam about the, uh, how the Quran uh, originated. One of the things that a lot of Christians don't understand uh, is the uh, relationship of the uh, Quran uh, to uh, Muslims. Uh, this is what I mean by that. A lot of Christians assume that what the Bible is to Christianity, the Quran is to uh, Islam, and that's actually false. Uh, that's false. Uh, the much more apt uh, analogy would be what Jesus Christ is to Christianity, the Quran is to Islam. Okay? Uh, so uh, when you uh, are looking at, uh, for instance, the, uh, the birth and, uh, the birth and uh, childhood narratives uh, in the New Testament, um, there are other narratives uh, in Islam, in the Quran and in the Hadith, uh, that refer to uh, um, uh, powerful stories of divine intervention in the uh, emergence of the Quran. Uh, interestingly, I'm, I'm about to uh, teach that in my world religions class uh, this week. Uh, so uh, it's one of the things that, uh, that really helps uh, Christians to understand where uh, Muslims are, are, are coming from and understand why they react so, uh, so violently about um, uh, dishonoring uh, the Quran. Now, uh, the other part of the question had to do with uh, uh, the impact uh, of Islam uh, in, the, uh, in the world. One of the things I teach in my uh, world religions class uh, is uh, a world religious tradition uh, that uh, manages to uh, reach out beyond ethnic boundaries, beyond national boundaries, but uh, beyond social uh, uh, class boundaries. Um, uh, they make the, the, the most powerful claims for their tradition. They've had the most impact on the world. Now, uh, one of the things uh, that I point out to uh, the students at the beginning of the year when we're studying the religions of South Asia, uh, uh, Hinduism is a very, very big religion. Uh, there's a lot of Hindus in the world, but there are very few Hindus who look like me. Uh, there are very few Hindus who look like a lot of people in this room. Right? So for, for some reason, for whatever reason, Hinduism has had a, a more difficult time breaking out uh, of uh, that particular ethnic limitation. Uh, Islam uh, has broken out uh, of uh, ethnic limitations. You don't have to be uh, Arab uh, to be Muslim. There are Indonesian Muslims, there are Chinese Muslims, there are Russian Muslims, there are American Muslims. Um, so the, um, I feel like I'm talking around uh, an answer to this question more I'm talking directly to it. Uh, the, uh, the clash that's happening right now uh, is the, these uh, civilizations that have been uh, formed most deeply by uh, Christianity uh, bumping into uh, the uh, cultures that have been formed most robustly by Islam. Uh, I think there's a lot of politics, uh, particularly uh, 18th, 19th, and 20th century politics uh, involved with this that a lot of people are really unaware of. I don't think I have time to get into all that tonight. Um, but uh, one of the things I teach in my history classes uh, is that the, uh, the fault lines that we see in uh, contemporary politics have an awful lot to do uh, with decisions that were made 
in the 18th and 19th and 20th century as capitalism was expanding uh, across uh, Asia and the Pacific. Uh, so uh, one quick example. In uh, China, uh, in the 1840s, uh, there was the first drug war. Uh, and I'm sure many of you uh, can see already where this is going. This was the Opium War. Uh, the Opium War in the 1840s, actually there was more than one. Uh, the Opium Wars in the, uh, in the 1840s uh, happened because the British were trying to force the Chinese to buy their opium because they weren't buying anything else from the British. Uh, so the very first drug war happened because the, the British were trying to force the Chinese to buy opium that they didn't want. Well, they, they wanted it, but the government said, no, this is wrecking our country, please don't. Um, well, and then you had the, uh, the Taiping Rebellion, you had the Boxer Rebellion at the turn of the 20th century. So uh, is it any surprise uh, that about a decade, or, uh, a decade and a half after the Taiping Rebellion, one of the things that happens is Mao Zedong says, you know, maybe the ways of the British aren't for us. Do you see what I mean? So there are some uh, reasons that uh, are a very deep part of 18th, 19th, and 20th century politics uh, that play into this to a very great extent. I'm not sure that if we put aside, if we were, managed, were ever to find a way to put some of these uh, issues aside or resolve them, if we wouldn't find we had um, uh, more to talk about in terms of our the commonalities of our religious faith. Thank you very much, Dr. Campbell. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.